This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. For those of you who've been listening to the show for a while, it's fairly obvious that there is, quite literally, a ton of data out there related to development initiatives and humanitarian assistance. If you had the time, money, and desire, you could find data about almost any aspect of assistance. Things like baseline data about a population, or damage assessments, or geospatial data, demographics of the people affected by a crisis, or even things like which organizations or governments and companies are on the ground helping. The problem is, in the humanitarian sector, organizations don't have the time, money, and people power to hunt down this data. And even more of a problem is the fact that the data is usually locked in spreadsheets on individual laptops, or only captured in written notes, or, unfortunately, kept hidden as potential competitive advantage. Sarah Telford, my guest for the 129th episode of the Terms of Reference podcast, is on a mission to change all of this. She is the Chief of Data Services at the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or we lovingly call them OCHA, and oversees the continuing development of a global open data platform called the Humanitarian Data Exchange. The goal of HDX is to make humanitarian data easy to find and use for analysis and, as of July 2014, had been accessed by users in over 200 countries and territories. I spoke with Sarah in New York. And hey, before we dive into the episode, if you like what you're hearing, take a moment to open up iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app happens to be and click on subscribe. Also consider giving the show a rating because it really does help. And finally, please consider sharing this episode or the podcast on Facebook or Twitter to help others get in on making aid and development better. Now onto the show with Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thank you for having me. Sarah, where do we find you sitting today? I'm in New York. I'm based in New York, and I'm working from home this morning. As I'm up in Westchester. As it should be. You know, we should all work yeah. from home every now and then, I think. <laughs> um, you work for OCHA, which, you know, if nobody knows what that is, it's the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, but most of our audience will know what that is. And correct me if I'm wrong, your, your title is still Chief of Data Services, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not a title that I use very often, to be honest, but that's the, the formal title. I love it. So tell, um, us, tell us, what is the title that you use? You're like your chief data wizard? Or what, what, how do you describe your position? I know, I just don't really use a title. I mean, I guess I'm just part of the humanitarian data exchange team, the HDX team. So, you know, I'm sort of the manager and I'm, I lead the, the team, but... I don't know. The UN is there's a lot of hierarchy with chiefs and directors, right. and but I feel like we're trying to run HGX with a slightly different model. This is flatter structure, and so yeah, I feel like the title doesn't quite work in what we're trying to do. I love, but occasionally, I, occasionally I have to use it. I was gonna say sometimes I think that's part of the UN thing as well. Sometimes you gotta put your card on the table and say, you know what, I'm the chief. Here's here's the deal. Yeah. Uh, so I love so now you've mentioned it a couple of times what we're really going to talk about today one of the pieces is the humanitarian data exchange and I'd like to explore that with you why don't you why don't we start off with you giving us the you know the 10,000 foot view of what it is and then we can talk about its history and whatnot sure so HGX is basically a place to share data about humanitarian crises from multiple organizations around the world. So we, we created it a couple of years ago. We launched it at the Open Knowledge Festival in Berlin in July of 2014. And, 
you know, I was just frustrated, really. I was working on reporting and information products and just couldn't find data. And when I did, it wasn't sourced or I didn't, you know, understand the methodology. And so it just came out of that. It was sort of, why don't we create a place where it's just easier to find data? And so the the tagline was about data use, but also, you know, making data available, but also that you could use it because we didn't want to create a place where you just had a bunch of bad data. We wanted people to be able to find it and then use it. So that's how it started. Just really simple frustration of not being able to find data and then getting some early funding from DFID and Sweden and the Humanitarian Innovation Fund. We basically had about a year to get it up and running. And in that year, you know, luckily we were able to get some traction. And, you know, since then it's um, grown even more. So yeah, it's been quite a journey, I would say, but, but really a great community and a great challenge. And we're able to attract a lot of you know, great people that want to work on on something like this. Let's talk a little bit more about the problem you solved. I mean, because this is classic. I mean, you you were an unwitting entrepreneur, right? You were frustrated by a problem, and that problem you know frustrated you so much. You said, "I, I think that there's a solution here," and you 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 have now created it. Why was data so difficult to obtain, or or when you did obtain it, it wasn't what you needed, or it was difficult to manipulate and connect, like? Can you take us through that problem? Like, why does that happen in the humanitarian sector? You know, I think it's because it's a really distributed sector. So, I mean, OCHA, for instance, we're in 60 countries. You know, WFP or UNICEF, they would be in 100, 150 locations. And so you're scattered all over the world. Um, There's different languages, different cultures, different skill sets. Um, There's no command and control, you know, that you might get in a industry, like if you're making cars or jet engines, you know, you would, GE would be able to say, this is how we want a certain thing. And it has to be this specification so that the whole thing can work. But in the humanitarian community, that doesn't exist. There's OCHA and our job is to coordinate, but it isn't necessarily to, to direct. So I think that's the core of the problem is that it's just a messy space, and we're also trying to all, you know, always be quickly responding to the next crisis and the next thing. And so there isn't always time to put in processes and standards and get adoption. And so you know, when I started looking at the problem, you would find what I call data graveyards, these sort of one-off solutions that it would be created for a certain you know, typhoon or earthquake. Say, can you or, give me a, a specific example? Like it, it would, if we looked at the, I mean, the most hurric- recent hurricane, I think it was Matthew, right? That just hit the United States. But uh-huh. if we go back was, you know, let's think about the hurricane or sorry, the, the earthquake in Nepal, were there a bunch of data sets that came out of that or was, was that already, you know, you were already up and running and you were able to, to work with that? As no. Well? Yeah. That was in 2010 that the big earthquake mm-hmm. that happened. Yeah. No, we started in 2014. So no, there were lessons learned that came out of that for sure that pointed to the need for data aggregation and increased efficiency around standards. But we came sort of after that. I mean, I've been with OCHA for 10 years, so it's not that I just started to think about the problem. Mm -hmm. I had been working on information management and more on the reporting narrative side. And had engaged the Economist Intelligence Unit and others to sort of see, you know, how do we become more analytical with what we're doing? And the recommendation was always, well, 
you need to access data and use data more. And so that's kind of how we kind of turned into that problem. But I think, yeah, it had been a common a common issue. And there was something, the World Bank uh, works with countries to set up something called a geonode, which is, it's basically a way to store um, geospatial data, but also other attributes, you know, locations of hospitals and, and education facilities and things like that. So those had, I'd saw, I saw a lot of those around, but I think the problem that they were having was they weren't maintained. So you can, you know, the easy part essentially is setting up the tech and putting some data in it. Um, the hard part is then maintaining that over time. And so that the next time you go there, the data is fresh and you know that it's, someone's taking care of this. Mm. So that, that was... D- dive deeper. Yeah. So a geonode, is that is that a physical thing? Is it a server you're putting somewhere or, or a box or is, yeah, it, is it a team of people or... Well, it's a, it's technology. It's an you know, open source framework for storing geospatial data that the World Bank helps. I mean, World Bank and others. I think WP uses the GeoNode. I mean, it's a common, it's a common sort of stack for storing geospatial data. Um, and so they had made progress with that certainly, but it was on you know with countries, so with the governments. To help them, I think you know. The, I think the original idea was that it was for preparedness. So when they were doing these kind of disaster assessments to see where there was risk in a certain country, they would often have to pull all this data together. And so to make that, um, or the hope to make that sustainable, was to to kind of build this infrastructure, and then the country would take it over and maintain it. But and I think in in some cases it certainly happened. Um, but I think the problem was capacity of the local government wasn't always strong enough to, to continue to maintain it. And then the, the data itself, I mean, HDX, I often say it's high touch. So every data set that comes in, you know, we review in terms of kind of a quality framework so that we're understanding if there's any personally identifiable information, if the metadata has the source and the license and the methodology. So all those things are really important because when the user goes to the to HDX or any sort of database, um, they want to make sure that the data they're using can be reused. So that's just what we started to see. And I think that, you know, with these large crises, because the World Bank and others kind of understood GeoNode, you'd start to see GeoNodes pop up in, in crisis environments. So I think there was one in West Africa that... Um, I forget the crisis, but I remember looking at it and thinking, well, no one's touched this for a year. How do we start to build something that's sustainable and then can be maintained? And so, and also just to take the burden away. I mean, every single time there's a new crisis, it's like, oh, okay, how are we going to share data? And there's all these sort of Skype chats and Slack chats where people are sharing data informally or through, you know, Google Drive or Dropbox and then the crisis is over, and that just gets lost. You know, you never see the data again. And I remember asking, I think there was some work done, you know, it was early on, so maybe in 2013, 2012, kind of on social media um, data. So extracting data from Facebook and Twitter, I think it was for a Philippines typhoon. And so they had, you know, used a lot of volunteers and gotten this, this data set together to see how they could start to understand who was in need and where they were based on the data they were extracting from the social media feeds. And so I just thought, oh, that's a really valuable 
data set. I wonder where it is. <laughs> so yeah, sure, I started yeah. asking around because I just thought I just want to see what it, what the data set looks like. Um, I saw, you know, I'd seen some maps of the sort of products that had been derived from the data, but I never saw the raw data. So I started asking around, and literally, I had to email five or six people, and finally, found this person who had it. And but it was on his desktop back in Geneva, and he was traveling, and so he said he would send it to me, you know, next week. Of course, because that and was. I just thought <laughs> that's. that's I, I sorry, I'm I'm laughing next to you, yeah. right? Not not at you. It's yeah, just no, so, I know. So so common, right? Yeah. So I just thought we have to be better. This this could be easier, and let's just create a place where people can go and find the data, whether it's historical and isn't. You know, a, a, who's doing what? Where data set on a crisis from two years ago is not going to be updated anymore. So then it becomes a historical reference. But data on the boundaries or on the population or the, you know, there's a lot of other things that do carry on and get updated. So those are the things that we like to maintain. And, you know, I didn't know, I mean, in early on, people said, you know, I wasn't coming at it from a technical point of view. I was coming at it from a sort of an analysis point of view, like we need the data to do these things, to create these products. And so as I got into the tech side of things, I just kept hearing, well, most tech projects fail. And, you know, why OCHA had done a lot of other things over the years that hadn't worked. And so there was a lot of cynicism, like, well, why are we doing this again? And you're going to make me try this again. And (laughs) Like there, so there was a lot of barriers. I would sure. say that we so had to I, overcome. I want to talk about those challenges for a second, but or sorry, in a minute. But take me through the process. Let's just say, you know, in what's the most recent data set that you've received or, or that you've worked on? What's what's the process? Does is it, you know, an organization is self-identifying that they have a data set and they say, hey, you know, this is probably useful for lots of other people, and then they submit it to you and you clean it, and then it becomes public available. Like, what's that process? What's that look like? Yeah, well. So the process is you can go to HDX now, humdata.org, and you don't have to log in. You can just browse the data, download the data, and you're basically anonymous to us. If you want to share data, then there's a process that you have to create a login, and then you have to request to create an organization. So all data on HDX is shared through organizations. So we get that request. So today I got one. And the, the, one, uh, the uh, thought behind that is that it's just one step of legitimacy, basically? Or? Well, yeah. That As we did user research, we invested quite a bit in, in user research before, to, you know, as we developed HGX, before it was even called HGX. And we heard a lot about trust, that we need to be able to trust the data. And so trust in our community, you know, comes from organizations. I mean, and they're mainly the main actors, right? Individuals don't collect data for their own individual purposes. It's usually on behalf of an organization. So we wanted to have that step. And and also, you know, we want to make sure that the data that's being shared is relevant to the humanitarian community. So Mm -hmm. if we get requests from an academic group that we, we haven't heard of or a private sector group, Instead of just saying, yes, go ahead and start sharing data, we, we, start, we engage them in a conversation. So we have a phone call and we try to understand the type of data that they want to share. 
Um, and then if that makes sense, of course, we approve them. So usually we do all that within a day. I mean, in a crisis, like just in Hurricane Matthew, we can accelerate that. So we had the Federation that was based in, um, I don't know whether, if it was in Haiti or anyway, around there, they set up a new organization and we approved that within an hour and they started sharing data um, right away. And that became a very popular data set. So we can expedite that, but generally it's good to just have that pause, do some research, make sure. Also, we we do some validation. A lot of people apply through their Gmail accounts. So we ask them to just confirm that they have an organization account and then we approve it. So then the data hopefully starts coming in. I mean, I think only about I think we have 220 organizations or something sharing data on HGX, but only 70% of them are active. So we have this funny thing that happens where people create organizations and then they don't share data. Which, which is, is typically always, like, yeah, that, that's interesting too, because you'd think that they would be producing data pretty regularly if they were sort of in the, in the sector doing active work, right? Yeah, or... I think what's, what happens is you have a progressive person who's working on data in, you know, Sudan or in some in some office, and so they decide they want to create the organization. But the organization isn't sort of institutionally approved. It's just this person wants to share data that UNICEF is producing in Sudan, let's say, and so then. There may be a problem once, you know, the organization realizes that people want to share data, then it's like, well, let's make sure the data is clean and there's certain quality control about it. And, and so that, that then there's an internal process that happens. <laughs> and so that, that's often why these kind of organizations get stalled, I think, mm-hmm. which is fine. I mean, I think it needs to be, it's better if it's an institutional level commitment to be to share data because if it's at the individual level that person leaves there's you know quite a bit of turnover in our community they leave a certain duty station and then there's no one there to maintain the organization and the data sharing so so yeah i think the the shift over time that we'd like to see is that that institutions and organizations are um, agreeing to share data and that also you know, we do that in a way that's a tr- kind of a trust framework. So we also have issues with data policy. There isn't, you know, really strong data policy environment in the humanitarian community, and the tech is ahead of policy. So we also need to kind of come up with frameworks for how we understand trust and what we'll do with data when we get it. I mean, HGX doesn't allow personally identifiable information. So anything that identifies an individual with a place we wouldn't allow that. So we do some, some tests when the data is added. And if we see individual names or you know email addresses, then we make the data set private and we let the organization know. And then they'll fix that and so that we can make it public again. But all those types of things you know, are part of the process that slow down data. So over time, if we can, or data sharing, over time, if we can have these frameworks in place and we can have institutional data sharing agreements, then we think that data will move more quickly across the network. Can you give me an example of how HDX has contributed in either a crisis event or, you know, is there some a story that you've heard or you've pulled out where it's like, oh yeah, we went to HDX, we pulled the data set and wow, we were able to create a different intervention or we put together our program in a different way or we, we you know, changed course. 
or you know, it made a difference in some way. Do you, do you, are you able to, to see down to that level? Yeah, I think it's hard. Once the data leaves, you know, we, we track downloads and once the data leaves, it's hard to know what people are doing with it. Um, we do a lot of data visualization work. So that's one of the incentives that we offer. If you're sharing data, then we can help to do some visualizations. And then we see the impact of those visualizations. So we just did some work with a group in East Africa named Teweza, and they do these education surveys. Um, and I think they had like, you know, half a million rows of data from surveys over a number of maybe this year in four countries and hadn't really done a lot of work on the data to see the insights. And so we built that um, this interactive visualization that could really draw out some of those insights. And for them, it's been really, you know, amazing. And, and they've shared that around and they're, it's, it's easier for them to tell the story of what they're doing with education and the levels of education in Tanzania and Kenya and in, across East Africa. So things like that are, are really, you know, inspiring um, because you can start to see the connection between, you know, the sort of data collection and processing to the insight. Um, but I think the biggest sort of change that we saw, and I think the, the reason that HGX was able to get continued investment was the work that we did on the Ebola response. So we had just come, we had just launched, it was July 2014, and the Ebola outbreak was kind of happening that summer, and things got more intense over the fall. And so the UN mission, UNMIR, came to us and said, you know, we'd like to use HGX as the kind of system of record for sharing Ebola data. And so we were a little bit nervous about that because we were still quite new. You're like, hey, we just got out of the gate. Sure, yeah. use us for the system <laughs> for the for the worst, you know, uh, bacteria infection ever in human history. Great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit. So I, we, I, I should remember I had a team call with everybody and sort of said, what does everyone think? Should we, should we put our <laughs> hand up for this? And everyone except one person said yes. So we jumped in. Kudos to you guys. The, right on. The thing that that was really simple but powerful was that WHO at the time was producing situation reports that had the number of cases and deaths for Ebola across the, the three countries. And they, they produced that in a PDF. And so we just started to take those figures out of the PDF and put it into... Um, you know, an Excel and... and uh, a usable set, basically. Yeah, Excel file, and made it accessible on HDX, and that's where everybody went to get machine-readable data instead of everyone having to, you know, kind of take it from this PDF report. So that data set, and that's, what is that, two years ago, is still the most popular data set that's downloaded on HDX. And mm. I guess it's because now they're using it for research, you know, and sort of looking at what came out of all that. But it was a really simple thing. Let's just make this data more accessible and put it in a place where people can find it. Um, and then from that, we more and more organizations started to add data about Ebola. So I think in the end, we had close to 80 or 90 data sets that were shared from different organizations. And then the evolution from that was we had sort of a list of data sets on a page. And I, because I come from a product background, I was like, well, there's a lot of people who are never going to even open those data sets and they're not going to understand the insight. So why don't we build sort of a page, a crisis page? 
which is what we did. So we did this interactive map that showed sort of the where the cases and deaths were happening across the, the region. Then we had a, a graph. We had some top-line figures. And then we had the data set list. And that became, you know, the first crisis page that we ever built. And we've done a few more since then. But that's, mm-hmm. I think, really what kind of put us on the map. It's a real, that's a super huge value add that, you know, just because you're facilitating the exchange itself, I mean pun intended you then are the ones who have you know have instant access to to be able to be able to create these visualizations etc the thing that was blowing my mind when we've had this other guests on on the show talk about this but you know it's the simple the simple fact that who was publishing on a pdf format and you said hey let's put it in a machine readable format right and mm-hmm. how much data you, you, you talked about, hey, look, some people create data sets, some people create spreadsheets or, or go out and do a survey, and then it's, it sits on their computer, the project's over, and it gets lost. But then that's just one rabbit hole. The other, you know, other rabbit hole is how much data is sitting in pieces of paper on people's desks or in archives or whatever that hasn't ever been extracted in that way. That, that kind of blows my mind. Do you have a emphasis on that of trying to extract that kind of data or... Is that just sort of, hey, you know, that, that's still happening and we hope that machine-readable thought processes will will prevail at the end of the day? No, that's very common practice. So we have a, a data lab in Nairobi, so a team there that works with organizations across East Africa. And one of the first projects they worked on was a secondary data collection for a risk model that the OCHA office was kind of leading with other organizations there. And so they had 40, I think it was about 40 indicators across 10 Ah. countries in East Africa that they wanted to get at a subnational level. And so they asked our team to to help with data data collection. And yeah, most of it was in PDFs. And so you had to sort of take it out of the PDF and put it into an Excel file. But a lot of it just doesn't exist. So in the end, we did a study, a data deficit map that showed out of those 40 indicators how many were national and how many were subnational. I think it was about 30% that were subnational um, in the mm. end and not consistent across countries. So you might have one indicator that's subnational in Ethiopia, but not in Kenya. So then you can't do any comparison. So yeah, I think those are the types of things that people need to understand when they're you know, doing the analysis and also the, the managers that are consuming the analysis that they have to understand the caveats related to the data. So that there's, yeah, there's a certain risk in this country, but it's based on really patchy data. So mm. take, it for what, take it for what it is. On the other side of that coin, we've also talked a lot on this show about ICT for D technologies, mobile data, mobile phones, you know, collecting data, big data. You know, on the other side of that coin, is, is there any sense that you could be overwhelmed with people coming either with giant data sets or just volumes and volumes of data uh, at the end of the day from you know, these either large-scale or voluminous data collection processes that would either overwhelm you or is that something you're like, yes, let's, let's get that going? Oh, well, I often say that we deal with the small, messy data. Um, so we're not really <laughs> dealing with these large data sets. It's kind of someone else's problem or challenge. Um, and so, yeah, our job is really... This, this kind of single spreadsheet data that's collected through a survey or, you know, the response and what's being distributed or now cash and what's being 
given. So those are, and it's usually by organization or by sector or cluster. And so the, the challenge becomes, one is just surfacing that data and getting it to a place where other people can find it. But then the real challenge is then combining multiple data sets, small data sets, into something that can build this common operational picture or an understanding of a crisis. So that's how we we started to develop something called a map explorer. So we did one, it's just a prototype right now, but we did one for the Lake Chad Basin and then more recently for South Sudan. And that's taking maybe eight to 10 data sets from different sources and making one, one visual that can then align it around geography and around time um, so that people can start to understand the relationship. So let's say ACLED has a data, data set on conflict events, and then UNHCR has a data set on you know, refugee camps and IOM on displacement. And so putting all that together along with something from WP on food market prices, and you start to see, well, so there's a conflict event here, and this is where there was displacement, and now the markets have gone up, and um, it, uh, you can start to understand these things a lot easier. But that work to get all of those data sets aligned can take, you know, one day per data set of cleaning, mm-hmm. not to mention, you know, the tech behind it. So it's like a two- or three-week process. So that's where the challenge is now. How do we speed that up? I call it the speed speed to insight. How do we take data from collection to use and make that much quicker? And all of that needs standards and you know aligning geometries. And this is a big kind of data cleaning validation problem that is kind of on our radar now to try and solve. Mm. Well, you've, you've, you've kind of walked me perfectly to our next question. Is it... What do the next five years look like for you on on the exchange? You know, you've just described one process that you want to improve and want to move on, which is is data cleaning. And I was just thinking when you were giving that example, you know, even if you just have those six organizations feeding data in about one area, it's the problem that you said at the very beginning. Let's just say they show up every month or every even every quarter with new data, right? Somebody then has to clean it again and make sure that it's historically relevant and that the historical data then matches the, the, the data that you, you know, you're working on right now. Uh, so that cleaning process has got to be super intense. What other things are you looking at you know, in the next five years? I know you, when we talked before that we started recording the show, you had said that you're going to be setting up a new data center. Well, a data center, not as a, a server farm, but a center. For <laughs> like an, an actual data, work, yeah, working on data kind of thing. Yeah, a place, this kind of open space to work on data. So that's on the radar for sure. Um, we're going to be opening up the space in The Hague in the Netherlands in early 2017. And so this was a commitment that came out of the World Humanitarian Summit that was mm. held in May. And one of the, the core commitments around changing the way we work to end need. So I think, you know, the, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, but the real issue, you know, as we've seen HDX get gain traction is that, you know, to really scale that we need to reach new audiences. So right now we have a lot of tech, field level, headquarters level, um, working level people using HDX and sharing data, but for it to really connect and have an impact on a crisis that there's the management kind of decision-making level that needs to start to become more adept at using data um, and consuming it. So 
part of that is capacity building. So the humanitarian community is not you know, quantitative group of people. Generally, we're, we're, we're not known. We're not known to be data crunchers. No, that's, I mean, that's in all fairness, that is changing, right? I think. Oh, the, for sure. The, the new generation coming in, data crunching is kind of you got to you just got to kind of have it, but still, the old guard. Yeah, we're, we're not known for our data skills. Right. It's a very narrative-based kind of culture, and a lot of critical thinking, of course. But so, yeah, how do we? shift this current generation to be more comfortable using data. Um, and so there's the challenge there. And then the, what I talked about, the data policy framework, how do we make it so that we're doing all of this responsibly as we get into iris scans and digital identity and, all, you know, there's risks there in conflict environments that we expose people to harm. So data policy, data literacy, the data services of HDX, and we haven't talked about this data standard that we're working on, the humanitarian exchange language, but working on getting that adopted and into um, different systems, and then community building. So how do we engage this global community that's so distributed and, and diverse? How do we keep everyone kind of engaged in the story of data? And so that it's not about technology, but about people. So that's really the hope of the center is that we can bring a new group together in a new place and kind of tackle some of these larger problems that we just haven't been able to take on within the confines of, of our you know, separate buildings. I'm, I'm harking back to something you kind of said about 20 minutes ago in this interview is that when you approach the problem, you were looking at it from a product perspective, essentially, you know, in your previous life, you were working in the reports department and, or sorry, not department, but you were working on reporting and you said, look, I need to be able to tell a story here. You know, I need to be able to do that. And I'm unable to do that because of these other factors. And so where I'm going with this is it, it sounds to me like you came to the problem with a solution in mind, or at least being able to visualize where you wanted to get to. And you had to build the pieces in order to get there. Am I characterizing that correctly, or, or do you think that that sounds like a correct characterization of, of maybe why this was successful rather than, you know, a bunch of tech guys or people getting together and saying, hey, let's let's build some data sets? Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, we definitely didn't come at it from a technical perspective. But I think the, yeah, we understood the problem. We did a lot of research on understanding the problem. And I had had, you know, a number of years in the sector, so I also wasn't new to the space, which I think was helpful. But also, we, we invested in user research. So I think that's something that is happening more now. But um, when I, you know, we worked with Frog, which is a, a design company. They're global, but we worked with their office in New York. When I went to my director and said, you know, I think we need to invest in user research and have these teams, they went to Kenya and to Columbia and they did some work in, in New York, obviously. It was kind of a crazy ask to say what you want to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in sort of with not even building the site. You're just trying to understand the problem and understand what users want. So that was a big hurdle. And once we got over that, I felt like on safer territory because I thought, no matter what, whatever comes out of this process, it's going to be user driven. Mm. And, you know, in the end it was, and it was fun. Also the creative process 
you know, lots of ups and downs and you think, oh, this is never going to work. And then all of a sudden there's some breakthrough and you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then <laughs> and you go I right see, back to the bottom next, the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so lots of ups and downs, but I see that now with the new center that we want to create. We just did a design workshop in the Hague where we brought together about 40 people. And again, trying to figure out like, you know, what's the collaboration model and what are the things, the activities and how are we going to do this together? And, you know, day one, I felt like this is never going to all come together. And then day two, you know, we have these breakthroughs and you think this is going to be the best thing we've ever done in our, in our lives. So it's sort of, that's the creative process. And I think that's what happens when you bring users into the experience early on, that you're going to get this kind of wide ranging, um, divergent kind of needs that then you need to kind of put together and say, all right, this is what the product will be or the service will be. So that was fun. And I mean, for HDX, I remember one of the exercises we did was to ask people, you know, the kind of a card sorting. So if you thought of HDX, should it be open or serious or fun or, you know, what are the things that you want to associate with this thing? So then it becomes something that you're feeling. And also, if it was a friend, um, you know, would it be, would this be a, a woman or a man? And how old would it be? And so then you start to also kind of embody it. So people would say, oh, it's definitely a guy, you know, in his late 20s, and he's super tech and cool. <laughs> and he's got a and beard and looks like a lumberjack. Anyway, no. <laughs> yeah, he's got a beard. Um, and then others would say, oh, no, of course not. It has to be more mature and serious. So it's a woman in her 40s that's really smart. Or So, you know, it's just that experience of user research was really wonderful and allowed us to, to kind of also people could air their frustrations for why things hadn't worked in the past. And we could, you know, try and understand that better. So that when we finally launched, I felt like this, you know, the product of HGX was, was based on what people were asking for. And do you think that now that it's a user-centered service, are you still out there evangelizing about it? Are you, is, is that still one of the biggest hurdles? And, you know, you said earlier in the, in the interview that you need to now go from these pockets of use to capturing the sort of the, the enthusiasm of leadership and the enthusiasm of others to, to sort of bring it to a standard. Is that a significant hurdle that you spend a lot of time on? Yeah, I think every day, you know, I think trust is a big part of data sharing and data collaboration. So it's sort of, I think of it as data is shared from, it's like a warm handshake to warm handshake, you know, that we have people in Nairobi and in Geneva and all these other kind of pockets where we have a lot of partners who are meeting face-to-face, -face, explaining the product, explaining the value and engaging people so that they want to be a part of it. Um, and that will just continue. I mean, that's not something that we're going to be able to stop doing. But we're, now as we're, we're taking on a new project in West Africa, we got some funding from the Paul Allen Foundation to do some integration of systems and um, data cleaning and validation using this Hexel standard. So we're going to do another big push on some user research to try and understand, you know, what are the data cleaning validation things that kind of a data manager needs to do and how do we make that easier? And then what comes out the other end and how do we turn those into insightful products? So that is going to be really exciting to see that because I feel like it's one of those problems that everyone feels if you're working in the data basement. <laughs> everyone understands the problem of data cleaning. 
And so how can we solve that, you know, by listening to people and, and producing something that really can start to transform the space? I love that you call it the data basement. I just, that just, that visualization is fantastic. I've been there. I've, I've cleaned my, my million rows of data. I know that that's, that's a great place to be, but that's a great visualization. Um, yeah. Well, also, unfortunately, I think it also speaks to the disconnect, right? It's like, it's like I have a basement here where there's a lot of noises and, you know, the laundry and the heater and you just kind of ignore it. But that's making the whole house work. So but over time, I think for us to bring the tech into the, the sort of management um, space, they, they have to be together in the same room for all this to work. To take your, sometimes I think, yeah. To take your analogy further as well, I mean, in most people's basements or attics, right? And they've got, that's where they store their memories. That's where they store piles of data, right? So those noises, you know, pulling that data out and actually making it usable so that we learn from our mistakes or we learn from our successes and are able to, to use those successes in, in, other, in other places. Right. Sorry, just, just taking your analogy one step further there. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think it's, it's just how do we start to integrate these things so that the information management officer or the data manager isn't in some, you know, other container that's off kind of a 10-minute walk from where the humanitarian affairs officer and head of office sit. You know, they all need to be together. And that this is how we begin to integrate data into decisions. Mm. So I've, you've mentioned a couple different times uh, as we've talked different pieces of funding that you've received to do this work. I've taken from that, you know, you, you received your funding or the, the HDX is essentially funded through traditional means, traditional donors. You said it was the Paul Allen Foundation, um, but it's a grant-based thing. Is there a thought process to bring it to where it's, uh, it has a different kind of sustainability model? Or is the thought right now to say, you know, we've, we've got a couple-year time horizon, let's, let's continue to get traction and, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there? Yeah, I think, I mean, in general, we, we don't want to have a fee-for-service model, so we never want to charge people or organizations for the work. I don't think that, I've never seen that work in our community. But also, you know, this is OCHA's mandate. This is what we do. It's it's a service that we should be providing to help the network and our partners to understand environments and, and be connected. So, and you know, the, the model now is, is donor, you know, donor-based um, funding. But I think with the center, one of the things that we talked about at this design workshop was in, in terms of sustainability and, and funding over the initial three years or something that we're thinking about. And we, we have some, some donors, the Dutch are supporting us for initially as well. The one idea was the, a social impact bond, so for humanitarian data. And that, I think, could work, to be honest. So the idea is that you have a donor that backs a bond that then a bank puts on the open market and then investors like you or me or anybody can come in and say, I want to buy you know, part of that bond. And then the center, you know, based on results, will return 2% or 3% on the original investment. And so then you, what you're paying for is the, is the result, and we're much more accountable to the people who are investing in our work. So I think that's something that I want to explore, probably not this year, because we're trying to just set the center up. <laughs> but I think next year, I think over time, yeah, we have to come up with new ways of just making this more, making the investment more accessible 
to people instead of it always channeling through a government agency or even a foundation. So I always ask the last two questions to every guest on the Terms of Reference podcast. And the first one of those is, who do you pay attention to to stay in the know? Uh, is Do you listen to your community? Do you, um, obviously, but are there particular pieces of your community to listen to? Are there blogs you follow? Are there magazines you read? You know, you mentioned Frog. Or is there, are there crazy places that you, you get inspiration from to take HDX to new places? Well, yeah, I'm always reading about everything. I mean, in our community, I love what OpenStreetMap does. WFP is an important partner with their VAM, the vulnerability assessment mapping work that they're doing. So, so yeah, I'd like to follow our community and, and seeing just now they, they announced for the Humanitarian Innovation Fund the journey to scale. So they announced three projects that are going to be supported. So I read that today just to see who, who got support. But I think, you know, nowadays there's so much going on in the world. I mean, just last night I was watching Westworld. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it's a new HBO series about artificial intelligence. And it's just fascinating to start to think out, you know, what happens as we create computers that are smarter than us and, and you know, not so relevant necessarily HDX today, but I certainly think HDX at scale is, is based on an intelligent system. So there's less manual mm-hmm. kind of downloading and, and um, tagging and that the system starts to get smart and can do that on, on, on our behalf. So I think artificial intelligence is something that I like to, to follow. Um, I'm going to go to a conference out in Northern California next month called Techonomy, and they're focused on the Internet of Things. And so just trying to understand how big you know, GE and Intel and others, what they're doing in the space, I think is always inspiring. And because, you know, I think the humanitarian sector is probably 10 or 20 years behind a lot of these leading. We hear, we hear that a lot on this show. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of see what they're doing and think, well, how is that going to start to trickle down into, into Chad or in car or some remote village? You know, how does that become real and relevant to people that we're trying to, to help? So the last question I have for you is, you know, an opportunity just to give a shout out to an organization or an innovation that that you're particularly fond of. You've already mentioned several of them, but is there something outside of HDX, something totally unrelated that, you know, you just mentioned the, I think you said Westworld, but um, something you totally think is, wow, this is cool. This is happening right now in humanitarian aid. People should know about it that you'd like to mention. Nothing comes to mind. I mean, I think the, the biggest disruption, obviously, will be cash and what that does to the sector. So instead of delivering food and, and hard supplies, you're giving people money and giving them a sense of agency over what they're doing with that and, and what they're buying. And so I think that's something to watch, for sure. And then the implications of that. So understanding now being able to track what people are doing with their money because they have they have credit cards or mm-hmm. um, vouchers and what does that mean for privacy so that to me is a really interesting space to watch sarah thank you so much for being a guest on the show today thanks for having me it's a pleasure you've been listening to the terms of reference podcast from aidpreneur.com subscribe to us on itunes